Church, this morning I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to John chapter 2. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning I want to read in your hearing John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, listen, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Heavenly Father, our prayer is simple. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. On the third day, a wedding took place. Some have seen that time indicator as John's way of foreshadowing the inevitability of the resurrection of Christ. After all, we as Christians love it whenever we come across the phrase, on the third day. And maybe that's precisely what John is doing. But I don't know that I'm convinced by that. I am convinced that John is connecting this story with the ones that precede it. What's ironic is that in John chapter 1, On numerous occasions, John gives time indicators. On three occasions, he says, the next day. John chapter 1, verse 25. John chapter 1, verse 35. John chapter 1, verse 43. When you and I put together those three next days, plus the three days that seem to separate the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of our story in chapter 2, 
It would seem to me that according to John's story, our passage happens on the seventh day. Now, why is that significant? Well, John has already tied and tethered Jesus to creation. In his prologue, the opening line, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. Those words explode off the page, causing our minds to race back to the opening line of the sacred book. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very outset, what John is telling us is that this Jesus is God. Not another God, a lesser God, a creation of God, but he is God. John does a masterful job of tying Jesus to God. So our story occurs on the seventh day of John's gospel. Now you might expect that Jesus, being the God-man, might rest on the seventh day. After all, in the creation story, when God finishes his work on the seventh day, he rested. But John shows us that Jesus does not rest on the seventh day. He launches the beginning of his three-year ministry on the seventh day. It's a ministry that will culminate with the sacrificial death of Jesus, the vicarious burial of Christ, and the glorious resurrection of King Jesus as he will victoriously burst forth from the tomb. On the third day, a wedding took place. Every society makes weddings into big deals. In fact, there's no society in human history that trivializes or downplays a wedding. A wedding is significant. A wedding is celebratory. A wedding is a social event that gets the whole village, the whole town involved. People mark their calendars because of weddings. Weddings have always been a high mark of any civilization. Every society makes a wedding into a social event. And on the third day, a wedding took place. What's interesting to note is that in the days of Jesus, the after party, the celebration of the wedding, could last up to seven days. It's also noteworthy to realize that in the days of Jesus, the financial responsibility of all those festivities did not fall on the father of the bride. Rather, it was the groom and his family that had to provide all of the things needed for the festivities. This particular wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Cana is located nine miles to the north of, La of Nazareth. We're not given the entire, entire guest list, but we are told a few people that are in attendance. John says that the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also present for they had been invited to attend the wedding. What I find interesting is that throughout John's gospel, he never identifies the mother of Jesus by name. He never calls her Mary. I suspect he does this because he doesn't want to confuse the reader as to the other Marys that share her same first name. 
It's also noteworthy to realize that John only allows Mary to appear twice in his gospel account. Here at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, we find Mary, the mother of our Lord, in John chapter 2. The next time we see her will not be until the very end of the public ministry of Jesus in John chapter 19 at the crucifixion of Christ. It is there in John chapter 19 verses 25 to 27 that while Jesus is hoisted and hanging on that tree, he looks down and he sees his mother there at the foot of the cross with the disciple whom he loved, John. And Jesus said to his mother, dear woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. That even on the moment of the cross, Jesus was still taking care of mom. But those are only two times in John's gospel where you find the mother of Jesus, on the stage. We are told the disciples were there. Now, up until now, we've only been introduced to a handful of disciples. Only about four of them have been named so far in John chapter 1. We're not for sure whether all 12 are at the wedding or just those few that have been named. John doesn't say anything about the 12 until you get to John chapter 6. So whether it's just a handful of disciples or whether all 12 of them are there at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, I'm not for sure. What I am sure about is that Jesus is there. Jesus made the guest list. Don't let that detail just sail right past you. People wanted to have Jesus around. Why? Because he was a fun guy. I mean, Jesus liked to have a good time and Jesus was a likable individual and people wanted him around. Think about it, a preacher that people wanted around. Think about that. Jesus was a rabbi who was not a sanctimonious stick in the mud. He was somebody that where, where they said, hey, we're gonna watch the football game, let's invite Jesus. Hey, we're gonna go tailgate, let's invite Jesus. Hey, we're gonna celebrate our daughter's birthday, let's invite Jesus. I mean, Jesus was one of those preachers that everybody wanted to be around. Don't let that pass you. Because whenever it comes time for wedding planning, always include Jesus. Marriage is infinitely better when Jesus is included. And anytime Jesus is invited to the wedding or to the marriage, he always shows up. Whenever he's invited, he always comes. And on this day, Jesus was there. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. I'm assuming everything was going well until the catastrophe happened. There was no more wine. Now, this is not just an insignificant detail. This is a monumental problem. There's no more wine. Apparently, the party's not over. It's long from being over, but there's no more wine. And for some reason, this consumes and concerns Mary, the mother of Jesus. So she goes up to him and, 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 and emphatically she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds, woman, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. At best, this is an awkward conversation between Jesus and his mama, don't you think? It's a difficult conversation. 
And on this Mother's Day, if you've ever had a difficult conversation with your mom, well, take some comfort, at least it's biblical. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in this moment, Jesus and Mary are having a difficult exchange. It, 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 it's, it's rather odd, but significant. What I'm about to tell you... Um, is going to make some of you very uncomfortable. But the wine of our story is not Welch's grape juice. The wine of our story is a fermented drink. Now, albeit it, it is diluted uh, a third to one-tenth of the full fermentation. But regardless... It's an alcoholic beverage. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says that the wine of the first century could be likened in strength to American beer. And this is what they were out of. You know that it's an alcoholic drink just because of the comments of the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet says that at festivities like this, that the groom, the person in charge, he, he always brings out the choice wine first. And then once everybody had had too much to drink, he brings out the cheap stuff because they don't know any different. They're already half inebriated, already drunk, so it really doesn't matter what else they bring. But the master of the banquet says, but you, my friend, you've brought the best out now. When he says that they've had too much to drink, he means they've gotten drunk. It's, it's that word to be inebriated. And there were times that in scenarios like this, as people attended weddings like this in the first century, that they would have too much of the wine and, and they, they would get drunk. If it is Welch's grape juice, how much do you have to drink in order to be drunk? I think you'd probably drown by it before you got drunk by it. I mean, it would take an enormous amount of Welch's grape juice in order to get drunk. Now, the Bible's very clear that God forbids drunkenness. It's uh, repeatedly spoken from Genesis to Revelation that God forbids his people to give themselves to drunkenness. Because drunkenness never leads you to God. Drunkenness never leads to holiness. Drunkenness never helps you to make better decisions. No, drunkenness always brings pain and suffering. And inevitably, it leads to foolish, stupid behavior. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask for any personal testimonies. But I think that everybody listening to my voice knows that what I'm saying is true. Drunkenness always brings about pain. And so that's why God repeatedly tells his people not to give themselves to drunkenness. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Anybody who has had too much alcohol to drink, you can testify to the debase degrading things that you have done or others have told you that you have done. So clearly the Bible says, do not get drunk. 
The Bible also is pretty clear that we are to submit to governing authorities. That whatever the the laws are of the land in which we live, we are to obey them as Christians so long as those laws are not in contradiction to the commands of God. So we live in the American culture. And here it's illegal for anybody to drink under the age of 21. Therefore, as Christians, not only is it wrong to get drunk, but secondly, if you are a Christian, it is wrong and sinful for any Christian under the age of 21 to drink. Let me say that again. It is wrong and it is sinful for any Christian under the age of 21 to consume any drop of alcohol. That is sinful according to the scripture. But where we get in trouble is that I think it's, it's very difficult to make the biblical case that God says throughout his book that it is a sin for everyone and anyone to ever consume any drop of alcohol. I mean, if that is true, then Jesus is sinful because Jesus consumed some alcohol, never to the point of drunkenness, but Jesus consumed some alcohol. And I don't think any of us would say that Jesus in any way was ever sinful. Now, personally, I I don't consume any alcohol. My family doesn't consume any alcohol. I am a gracious teetotaler. I used to be an obnoxious teetotaler. (laughs) Because I was one who would try to make the case that any drop on anybody's lip was a sin in the sight of God. And I used to be obnoxious about it. I just have to confess. I was very obnoxious about it, but now I think that God is working and I'm a a gracious teetotaler. You need to understand the family in which I lived. I had a mom who was a very practical theologian. And my mom would say, I can remember her saying, I can hear her saying it even now. If you never take one drink, you won't become an alcoholic. It's pretty good advice from mom. If you never take the first drink, you probably won't become an alcoholic. So that's kind of the, the setting and the scenario in which I live. And so, so I've always lived my life and I, I don't have any desire for alcohol. And at the same time, I realized that, that while it might be a freedom that God gives to me and to some of you, while it might be a freedom, it's a freedom that I have willingly laid down. Why? Because I realized that it would be a stumbling block to some of the people that I shepherd. And I don't want to do that because my relationship with you is far more valuable than the freedom that I may have in my life. So I don't want to do anything that would cause you to stumble. So because of that, what we have said as a church, realizing that, that God uh, does not permit drunkenness and God also wants people, even the, especially the household of the faith, to submit to authority. So that's why we have said as a church that we have said to our staff, to our deacons, and to other church leaders, while you might have that freedom, will you willingly lay that down in order to serve? Now, why do I say all this? I say this because I I want us to approach this topic and every topic in a very Christ-honoring, biblical way. 
So I tell you all that because I just want you to know that the wine in John chapter 2 was wine. That people drank it and they got drunk by it. Mary comes up to Jesus and she says, there's no more wine. Now she's frantic about this. It's not because she's a drunk, okay? Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not like, I need my fix. No, she understands that this is a critical cultural crisis. There's no more wine. In a culture where something like this would bring shame and embarrassment upon the family, Because that family would be viewed as a family that could not provide for all of their guests. And it would bring an enormous amount of shame to the name of the family. And so so Mary is upset about this. Now, I don't know um, why she's so upset. It's, It's a little bit vague, a little bit ambiguous. Maybe it's a friend of the family. And that's why she's so ramped up about this. Maybe she has a role to play. Maybe she's, you know, one of the 14 wedding coordinators. You know, sometimes there are certain weddings and you go to that wedding and it's obvious there's about 12 or 14 leaders. I mean, they're all trying to coordinate everything. And maybe Mary is one of those coordinators. Maybe somebody in passing just said, you know what? This is terrible, but there's no more wine. I mean, this thing is about to tank. It's about to go south quickly. And she thought to herself, eh, Jesus can fix it. Because Jesus can fix anything, right? So she goes up to him and and she says, there's no more wine, fix it. Certainly the families of the groom and the bride, they didn't want a catastrophe. They had been planning for this wedding for months. The bride, she'd been planning for this wedding her entire life. All little girls of any culture Dream about the day that they are going to get married. And ladies, all you want for that day is a little bit of heaven. I mean, all you want is for everything to be perfect. You got to have the perfect place and the perfect flowers and the perfect dress. And you got to have, uh, you know, the perfect bridesmaids and oh yes, the perfect groom. Everything has to be perfect just for that one day. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. Because on that one day, you want everything to be perfect. Why? Because you've been dreaming about this. You've been thinking about this since you were a little girl. In fact, ladies, since you were young, you used to play make-believe wedding, Right? You would dress up and you would be the the bride. Ladies think about weddings far more than guys do. There are no little guys who are out playing makeup wedding. Uh, if, If they are, if they are, you need to have a conversation with them and bring them to me and I'll have the conversation, okay? Because there are no little boys that are playing make believe wedding. In fact, guys, if you can remember back, or maybe you're in this stage right now, uh, you're, you're dating somebody, and you're thinking to yourself, this is going pretty good. I kind of like this girl. Uh, I'm having a good time. Guys, if you're thinking that, I promise you that the girl is already thinking, how many bridesmaids will be in the party? <laughs> what? What size swing set will we get for the backyard of the first house? And I really hope that the second child has your eyes. 
That's how far ahead a girl is more than a guy, okay? In fact, over the last couple of years, I, I, I flipped through the television, and there's a show that's called Say Yes to the Dress. Now, I, I don't watch the show. Um, I'm assuming the premise goes something like this, that, that a bride-to-be is looking for that perfect dress, and every episode has to be about the same, right? I mean, she has to say no to about 27 dresses until that perfect dress comes, and everybody says, yes, that's the one. I mean, guys, you do not find Say Yes to the Tux. You don't find a show like that. We pretty much wear whatever we're supposed to wear, right? Whatever we're told to wear to color match and everything is going on. We, we don't think about it as much. But I promise you, brides think about this. They've been thinking about it all their lives. And this bride had been thinking about this all of her life. And the last thing she wanted was a catastrophe of monumental proportions by running out of wine. So Mother Mary goes to Jesus. They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. The word for woman is the word gune. And no, Jesus did not just call his mom a goon. <laughs> but the word gune, um, it, it's, not, it's not rude, but it is abrupt. Uh, he, is, he is grabbing her attention. He's, he's not degrading her. He's not putting her down. But he is grabbing her attention. Woman, why do you involve me? What does this have to do with you and me? I know what's got to do with you, but what about me? What does this have to do with me? Why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. My hour, better translated, my hour has not yet come. Throughout John's gospel, John will speak about the hour of Jesus frequently. He'll speak about this hour in chapter 7, in chapter 12, in chapter 13, in chapter 17. On numerous occasions, he will speak about the divine hour of our Lord. And here in John chapter 2, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. What is he doing? He is distancing himself from his earthly family. Because Jesus knows that on this day, he's going to launch his ministry that will encompass the entire family of God. What he's saying to Mother Mary is significant. He is saying to her that just because you have been my earthly mom, you have nurtured me, you've helped me, you picked me up when I had fallen as a child and skinned my knee. Just because you're my earthly mom, don't think that you have an inside track into telling me what to do. You've got to come to me the same way anybody else has to come to me, and that's by faith. To believe that I am Messiah, not just to come to me telling me what to do. But that's what Mary was doing. And Jesus must have thought, woman, why are you bossing me around? I'm 30 years old. It's not like I'm a 14-year-old teenager and you're trying to tell me to clean up my room. No, I'm 30 years old and you're still bossing me around. What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus, in this moment, is distancing himself from his mother because even, and especially Mother Mary, she has to come to Christ by faith just like you and just like me. 
In fact, on another occasion, um, Jesus will be told, your mother and brothers are here looking for you. And he will say, who are my mother and my brothers? My mother and brothers are those who do the will of the, of the one who sent me. That's my mother and that's my brother. Still though, Mary demonstrates some level of trust. She says to the servants, just do what he tells you to do. Mary had become accustomed to the ingenuity of Jesus. If church historians are right, Joseph died sometime in the teenage years of Jesus. So Jesus was not only the son of a carpenter, he was the provider of his family. So Mary was probably a widow. She had been a widow for several years and she depended heavily upon the creativity of Jesus. And so in this moment, like every other moment, she just simply turns to the servants and she says, you do whatever he tells you to do because I still think he can fix it. Jesus saw six large stone water jars. All six of those would each hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Therefore, you do the math, that's about 120 to 180 gallons of water. Jesus told the servants to fill the water in the jars to the brim, dip out some of that water, and take it to the master of the ceremony. The master of the ceremony was the chief steward. He was the caterer of the entire event. Now the servant took that ladle of water and took it to the master of the banquet and he drank it. He didn't know where it came from. The servants did. The servant knew it was water that had been changed into wine. And the master of the ceremony immediately noted the superior quality of that wine. It was better than the best. So he calls the groom aside and he says, hey boy, well done. Or what a waste, one of the two. He says, listen, most of the time, uh, people bring out the choice wine first and then the cheap stuff. But you, you brought out the cheap stuff first and now you've got the choice. You saved the best until now. Apparently, the party went on for days. Crisis averted. Super Jesus to save the day. And all seems to be well. But what Jesus was doing was far more than getting a groom out of a tight spot. Jesus was doing something significant in this moment. In fact, John says in verse 11 that this was the first of miraculous signs of Jesus. This was the first. The word can be translated first or it can also be translated key or important. So this is the key sign. This is an important sign. This is the first sign. First in importance, first in chronology. A sign uh, points people down the road, doesn't it? A sign leads you to your ultimate destination. And John says that what Jesus did on this day was the first of many signs that point people down the road. I think there are at least three takeaways about Jesus that you and I need to remember when we think about this story. The first takeaway is that Jesus came to make all things new. Jesus came to make all things new. He made new wine out of water. Now, even him doing that is very messianic. 
Because uh, the Old Testament prophet Amos says that in the days of the Messiah, that the day is coming, declares the Lord, when new wine will be dripping from the mountains and new wine will be flowing from the hills. Now, we don't think of that in an alcoholic sense. We, we don't think about that in a drunken sense. But we think about in that, that God's going to do something brand new. That in the days of the Messiah, when Messiah comes, there'll be a new wine unlike any other. And Jesus chooses this moment to change water into new wine. Later in John chapter 2, Jesus will speak about a new temple. He will say, you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. In chapter 3 of John, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about new birth. That in order for you to be born again, you will have new life, new birth. In John chapter 4, This Jesus will speak to a Samaritan woman about new water. That this water will well up inside of you. You you can't even reach the the, the bottom of the well here. But I will give you water where you will thirst no more. You will have new water. Later in the conversation with the woman at the Samaritan well, Jesus will talk about God who wants new worshipers. Worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There's this constant theme of newness all throughout John's gospel. And it's front loaded right here at the beginning. So in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine, it reminds us of the newness of life that only Jesus can bring. So Jesus came to make all things new. Do you recall what the Apostle Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's made all things new in your life. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, today can be the day when he does a transformation in your heart and mind. And he can make all things new. Old is gone. New has come. There's a second takeaway. That the provisions of Jesus are lavish. It wasn't just that the quality of the wine was superior, but the quantity of the wine was superior. Jesus made 120 to 180 gallons worth of wine. My father in the ministry, Robert Smith Jr., says the reason that amount of water became wine is because that water saw its creator and blushed. The problem in our story is not the absence of wine. The problem in our story is the absence of salvation. Jesus specifically chose six stone water jars used for ceremonial washing. They were used by the Jews to wash utensils, pots, pans, hands, everything they could find. Because while it's true that cleanliness is next to godliness, is nowhere found in the Bible, yet the Jewish people believed that if everything they touched was clean, and if they were clean, they could present themselves as clean before the Lord. And so they tried to wash everything. And the problem is that no amount of holy water can make a sinner saved. No no amount of ceremonial washing can make you cleansed. And Jesus came, and in a very lavish way, he provided everything that we need. It is not that he gives us new water, but he also gives us us his blood, which covers over all of our sin, past, present, and future. The hymn writer is exactly right. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is Jesus who gives us a lavish provision of his salvation through the accomplished work of Christ on the cross. So we come to him and realizing from the very outset that he came to make all things new. Secondly, that his provisions are lavish. But the third takeaway is that Jesus is the king who came to usher in the kingdom of God. He is the king who came to usher in the kingdom of God. It is no accident, my friend, that Jesus chose a wedding feast to begin his ministry. The book begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve. The book will end with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all throughout, we are called the bride of Christ. It is no accident that Jesus chooses a wedding feast to say this reminds us of the kingdom of God. Out of all festivities, out of all events in life, the one event that most mirrors the kingdom of God is this event. And so Jesus chooses this moment in time to say, I am here to usher in the kingdom of God. John says this is the first, apparently, of many signs that Jesus does this to reveal his glory and to bolster faith in his disciples. That all of these signs, all of these activities of Jesus, it's not so we sit back and say, wow, he's awesome. Wow, what a great guy. Isn't that swell? He came and he provided wine when there was no more wine. No, the point of any of these miraculous signs is to reveal the ultimate glory of Christ and to bolster faith inside of us as his disciples. This... John chapter 2 story fits in perfectly with the ultimate mission statement of John. John chapter 20 verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. These things written about this Jesus so that you would believe that he is Christ, son of God. And by believing, you would have life in his name. How long has it been since you thought about the these things that John wrote about this Jesus? In John chapter one, it is this Jesus who's identified as the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. In John chapter 2, it is this Jesus who changes water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. In John chapter 3, it is this Jesus who has a conversation with Nicodemus under the cover of night, which incidentally is the first Nick at night, and he tells him how to be saved. In John chapter 4, Jesus, who's an equal opportunity savior, has another roadside conversation with a Samaritan woman and tells her how to be saved. In John chapter 4, this Jesus heals an invalid of some 38 years. 
In John chapter 6, this Jesus feeds 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. In John chapter 7, this Jesus says, if you believe in me, streams of living water will well up inside of you. In John chapter 8, this Jesus shows grace to a woman caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 9, this Jesus heals a man born blind. In John chapter 10, this Jesus says, I am the gate and I am the shepherd. In John chapter 11, this Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. In John chapter 12, this Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem for the very last week of his life. In John chapter 13, this Jesus washes the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. In John chapter 14, this Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, this Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In John chapter 16, this Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who believe. In John chapter 17, it is this Jesus who prays for himself, his disciples, and all believers. In John chapter 18, it is this Jesus who's arrested. In John chapter 19, it's this Jesus who's crucified for your sins. In John chapter 20, it is this Jesus who is raised from the dead. In John chapter 21, it is this Jesus who reinstates a wayward apostle named Peter. Friends, these things are written about this Jesus so that you may believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you too may have life in his name. John says, listen, I just want you to know that when the king shows up, water will turn to wine. When the king shows up, dead people will come to life again. When the king shows up, the deaf will hear. When the king shows up, the blind will be receiving sight again. When the king shows up, everything will be changed. When the king shows up, that which is wrong will be made right. When the king shows up, he will usher in his kingdom. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we praise. This story is so much more than merely getting a groom out of an embarrassing situation. No, Jesus wants us to know that he came to make all things new. He came to give us provisions that are lavish. He is the king of the kingdom. And he came to usher in God's kingdom, both now and forevermore. Do you know King Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? Have you surrendered unto him? If not, on this day, on this first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday, on this day, surrender to the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray that you will move and we will respond. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.